Um, Today's scripture reading is from Titus 2, verses 1 through 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. This is word of the Lord. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this gathering of New Hope Fellowship. And thank you, Linda, for reading God's word to us from the letter to Titus. I, um, I recently heard a, a wonderful Bible teacher named Nigel Stiles. Nigel Stiles, um, no relation to Harry Stiles that I know of, but Nigel Stiles, um, he made the claim that every book of the Bible has a, has a melodic line. What, what he meant is that there's a, every book of the Bible has a certain idea that runs through it from beginning to end. A kind of resounding theme to each book. And, 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 if, and if Mr. Stiles is right, and I, and I think he is, the melodic line of the letter to Titus is something like this. The gospel leads to godliness. The gospel leads to godliness. We could perhaps state it in different ways, but it's a, it's a chord that struck again and again at points in this, in this very short book. In fact, in the very first line, Titus chapter 1, verse 1, the writer refers to knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. And the truth there is the truth of the gospel. And he's saying it accords with or it aligns with godliness. So where the gospel is believed and accepted, one should expect to see Godliness, emerging and growing. And in chapter 2, verse 11, he writes that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all. And the grace of God there that's appearing, it's a grace of God that appears in the gospel itself. And he says that this grace of God that appears in the gospel, it's training us to renounce ungodliness, that is to say no to ungodliness, and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The gospel leads to godliness. I think I should probably define some terms. We've done this before, but it bears repeating. By the gospel, what I mean is the wonderful news, the unmatched wonderful news of God's plan. 
to rescue this sin-cursed world and to rescue every person that believes in his son, Jesus Christ, who came into this world, lived a perfect life, died on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins and rose again. And one day he's going to return. And when he returns, he's going to make all things new. And he's going to rule over a newly created world where righteousness and justice reigns. That's the gospel. And where that message is believed and accepted, Titus tells us, we should expect to see godliness. And by godliness, we don't mean religiosity. To be godly doesn't mean to be simply respectable. If you read through the Gospels, you find that Jesus Christ interacted with lots of religious people and lots of very respectable people who were all very far from godly. And he he says so. Godly literally means to be like God. And if we want to know what it looks like to look like God, all we need to do is look at Jesus himself, who is fully man and fully God. So we could say that to be godly means to be Jesus-y, to be like Jesus, to reflect his character, his conduct. And as we've seen in prior weeks, godliness isn't just about keeping our hands clean from sin. Certainly Jesus kept his hands clean from sin, but godliness also involves getting our hands dirty in serving others. Because Jesus certainly got his hands dirty in serving others. In fact, Titus chapter 3, verse 8 says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. You see what the Apostle Paul is saying there. Those who have believed in God, who have believed the gospel, should devote themselves to good works. Not just abstain from evil works. Not just keep your hands clean from doing what's wrong. But to get your hands dirty. To be devoted to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Then later in verse 14 of that same chapter, Titus of Titus It says, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Same idea again. Devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need. Good works involves rescuing people in need. Providing people who lack with what they need and not be unfruitful. So, the gospel leads to godliness. That's the the melodic line, so to speak, of this whole letter. And and, and it's the resounding theme of Titus. And and at the same time, at the same time that this book teaches us that the gospel leads to godliness, the book is also super realistic about the fact that sometimes we can claim to believe the gospel and at the same time act in ways that are not very Jesus-y, that are not very godly. At the same time, our lives can fall out of alignment with the gospel that we claim to believe. So that the way we live doesn't point to the gospel, doesn't flow out of the gospel. That's the problem that the Apostle Paul is addressing in this letter. Paul the Apostle had planted these churches on the island of Crete with his friend Titus. 
Crete is, a, I don't wonder, I, I wonder, no one, no one has come up to me and told me that they've been to Crete. I wonder if any of you have been to Crete. If you've been there, I'd love to, to hear about it. I'd love to go there one day. It looks like a beautiful mountainous island off the southern coast of Greece in the Mediterranean. It looks lovely. Paul the Apostle and his friend Titus went to Crete, not on vacation, but they went there to plant churches. And then Paul left Crete, but Titus stayed behind, quote, to put what remained in order. That is, there were messes there. There were things that were out of alignment there. Paul left his friend Titus there to put those things in order. And here's one major thing that was out of order. Many people in Crete had believed the gospel, and now they, they claimed that Jesus was their Lord, but their lives didn't align with that belief. Their lives were being more shaped by their culture than by the gospel. Their lives failed to align with the gospel that they claimed to believe. And, and that's not a specifically Cretan problem, is it? it? It's a Westchester, New York problem. And a Wisconsin problem. It's a planet Earth problem. Philippians 1.27, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church very different from the churches in Crete. The churches in Philippi, and he says... Only let, listen, listen, Christians, new Christians in Philippi, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He writes in another place to another church in Ephesus. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. See, he's telling people to live in a way that's worthy of what they believe, worthy of the gospel. And that doesn't mean to live in such a way that you earn the grace of God. It, to walk worthy of the gospel doesn't mean to live in such a way that you deserve now the gospel because you live such a great life. No. It means live in a way that aligns with what you believe. So that people could look at the way you live, the decisions you make, the words that you speak, the goals that, you, that, that you're pursuing, and, and be able to trace that back to the truth of Jesus Christ and what he's done. And who he is. Make choices and take actions that flow from what you believe and from the character and words of your Lord. That's what the Apostle Paul told Christians in Philippi and in Ephesus and in Rome and in Crete and in Westchester, New York to do. The fact that Paul had to teach this so often tells us that it's a common problem, right? That this falling out of this disconnect between our lives and what we believe must be super common because Paul keeps saying it over and over again. If you're a Christian who spent any time reading the scriptures, you've probably lamented the fact that you're not as much of you're you're a lot less like Jesus than than you wish you were. The more you look at Jesus in the books, the pages of scripture, the more you see how different you are from Him. I believe the only people who really think they're a whole lot like Jesus are people who don't know a whole lot about Jesus. Aren't we at times influenced more by our culture than by the gospel? Aren't our goals and our actions, our words, our habits, our lives shaped more by the values, the culture in which we live, than by the character and the words of Jesus. That's why Paul keeps hammering this idea 
But he also keeps hammering it for another reason. He keeps hammering this idea because he believes in the power of the gospel. You see, Paul believes that, be, he, he, that, that if we are willing to humbly seek to have our lives realigned to the gospel, that God's able to do that. That God is able to achieve that. And so he keeps urging and teaching, and, uh, and he wants Titus to do the same. So that's what he does here in Titus chapter 2. He tells Titus what to teach these churches, these Christians, about how to live. So I'm going to invite you to please look at Titus chapter 2. The Christians in Crete, they, they had been handed, they were being handed consistently lies. Lies from the culture, lies from false religious teachers inside the church. And so Paul tells Titus, no, no, no. The people in your churches are, are, are hearing lots of lies. But as for you, he says in verse 1, as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. He's saying, Titus, you need to teach these people what it looks like to live godly lives. You need to not only teach the gospel, don't stop teaching the gospel, that, that, that sound, healthy doctrine, truth, but you also need to apply that truth. You need to show Christians what it looks like to align their lives with it. You might think of it this way. The gospel is truth, and yet there's a certain ethic, a certain way of life that aligns with that truth. And so the Apostle Paul is telling Titus, you need to teach both. In other words, it's been stated this way by many teachers, gospel indicatives must be accompanied by gospel imperatives. Here's what I mean. An indicative is simply a statement of truth. An imperative is a command. It's an instruction. And so the gospel indicatives, the truths about who Jesus is, what he did and what his death and resurrection mean for us, the fact of his future return, these are gospel indicatives. These are unchanging truths. And out of those unchanging truths flow particular instructions, commands, imperatives about how we should live. And so we need both. We need the gospel indicatives and we need the gospel imperatives as well. So Paul gives Titus both. He does this a lot in his, in his, in his letters, by the way. Paul always did this. In Ephesians, for instance, if you're, if you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, there's six chapters in it, right? Six chapters in that letter. In the first three chapters, Paul lays out the glorious gospel indicatives, all of who Jesus is and what it means for us. If you've believed in Jesus, if you've believed the gospel of his life, death, and resurrection, then now you are an adopted by God, a member of his family, fully accepted, fully forgiven. You are not who you once were. All of that is unchanging truth. And then in the last three chapters of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says, here's how you need to live if all that is true. Here are some imperatives. Here's how you should live in the home, in the workplace, in the world. In Titus 2, he does the same thing. He just reverses it. If you look at just the, the paragraphs there, in Titus 2, verses 1 to 10, which we're looking at today, he writes about how Christians should live. And then in verses 11 to 15, the end of that chapter, he lays out the gospel. 
the indicatives. So, so here, instead of it being indicatives followed by imperatives, it's flipped, and the imperatives come first, and then the indicatives come next. And in verse 15 of Titus chapter 2, the apostle says this to Titus, his friend. He says, declare these things, all these things, the indicatives and the imperatives, the unchanging truth and the, 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 implica- the, impl- the implications, the, the, the teaching that flows out of that, the instructions that flow out of that. Teach all of it, he says. In fact, exhort and rebuke with all authority because both the indicatives and the imperatives come from the Lord. So deliver them with Christ's authority, he says. And he says, let no one disregard you. Because if they disregard you, they're actually disregarding Christ himself. Um, for anyone who is in a position of teaching, whether it means teaching the church like this or teaching in a smaller group or teaching in your home, we need to be careful here with this idea of indicatives and imperatives. We need to make sure that whatever commands we're authoritatively laying on people really do, in fact, come from God's Word. This can be done badly, poorly, and, and to the detriment of people. I need to make sure that whatever imperatives I pass on to you really do align with what God says and don't go beyond what the Bible says. Another way to think about that is that we need to make sure that the, the applications that we're making, the duties that we're communicating to people and laying on people, we need to make sure that those aren't just a reflection of our own sensibilities, our own preferences, our own opinions. Teachers can sometimes do this, right? You can say, because God is who he is and because God has done this, now I'm going to tell you how to live. But the way that I tell you how to live flows more out of my own preferences, my own culture, my own upbringing, my own sensibilities. and might not be rooted in God's word. And so my job as a teacher is to make sure that anything I'm encouraging you to do flows from God's word. And your job is to make sure that if I encourage you to do anything or push you in any direction authoritatively that does not come from God's word, you need to call me out on that. Say, no, Rob, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't sound like God saying that. That sounds like your preference, your political ideas, your sensibilities, your opinions. And so we've sought, I hope, as a church to stop short of going further than the Bible does. So, for instance, if we're talking about how uh, the gospel must shape the way that we think about our relationship to our neighbors, or the way that we think about politics, or the way that we think about authority structures within, within government, for instance, we want to make those connections, but I want to be super careful that I'm not going beyond what the Bible says. So I'm not telling you that, well, because of the gospel, here's how you need to vote, and here's who you need to vote for. Don't ever let me do that. I hope that if I ever do something like that, you'd call me out. Or because of what the gospel says, here's, uh, here's, here's, here's how much you should be spending. Here's what your budget should look like to the minutest detail because of what the Bible says. Or here's how you should dress. <laughs> or here's the entertainment that you should watch and shouldn't watch. All of these minute applications that may in fact not even come from God's word. I need to be very careful that I don't go beyond where, what God says And you need to be careful that you don't let me go beyond what God's Word says. So, in light of all that, let's try to understand what God says in these 10 verses. And we'll try to do this um, uh, efficiently, um, 
but hopefully uh, in a way that, that, that helps us walk out of here ready, a little bit more prepared to live in light of the gospel. So what Paul the Apostle does in, chapter, in verses 1 through 10 of, of Titus 2 is he identifies a few categories of people in the Cretan churches. And then he goes one by one through these categories of people and he lays out some specifics about how they need to live. I've got four questions to guide us through the passage. Simple questions. Who, what, why, and how? Who, what, why, and how? So who does the Apostle Paul address? Who does he identify in these verses? He identifies six categories. Here they are. He identifies older men, older women, younger men, younger women, Titus himself, and bond servants. Six categories. We're not going to look at all those. We're only going to look at four of those because we don't have enough time. And by the way, these six groups, they're not, it's not exhaustive. This doesn't cover everyone in the whole church, right? But these are six major groups, important categories within the church. So that's the who. But then what? What does Paul say these people need to be taught? Let's go through and look of what the Apostle Paul says they need to be taught. And by the way, again, this is not exhaustive teaching. This is not everything that these people need to know about how to live lives, lives aligned with the gospel. But what the Apostle Paul says here is probably specific to their culture to some degree. It's probably a response to some of the, the cultural influences that they were experiencing. But I also want you to notice that as we go through this list, we're going to see that there's some overlap between what God calls older men and older women to live like, for instance. There's overlap and some differences. But there's also a lot of overlap with what the Apostle Paul described as the characteristics of potential elders in the church. We looked at this a few weeks back in chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. The Apostle Paul describes what elders need to, to look like. It looks a lot like what he describes here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. That's not a coincidence. Because whether it's elders, that is leaders in the church, or older men, or, younger, or older women, or younger women, or younger men, or bond servants, they all need to look Jesus-y. He wants them all to look a lot like Jesus in ways that are specific to their particular roles, but in ways that also overlap. So let's look at each of these. Let's look at what he says to older men in verse 2. Paul says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Who are the older men? He doesn't give us an age range here. He just says older, which probably means that this is a relative term, right? So that means that within any church, you might be an older man in one church and a younger man in another church, depending on the makeup. So it was incumbent on these people in Crete, as it is incumbent on every man in this room, to look around and be like, well, let's see, where do I fall, on the, older on the older end or the younger end? I'll leave that up to you to do that math and figure that out. But he says, if you are one of these older men, older than average in the church, you need to be sober-minded. Sober-minded. The word literally means sober, like not intoxicated, right? But it has more meaning than that. It, it, it goes beyond that to, to mean clear-headed and serious-minded, not silly, not just a joker or a clown, but serious-minded when necessary, clear-headed, not intoxicated by drugs or alcohol on the one hand, but also not intoxicated by other things. Older men need to live dignified, 
he says, in a way that's dignified. That means they need to live in a way that, that, that younger men would look and think, I want to be like that. There's something about, I may not want to be exactly like that older man. I, I'd, like to, I'd like to look better than that older man, maybe, or I, I'd like to have more hair than that older man, but, but there's something about him that I really do want to be like. There's something that I aspire to there. He also says that older men need to be self-controlled. And we're going to see that term pop up again and again in this list. Self-control. Keep that in mind. It's something that applies to all the categories in this group, in, the, in these churches. And then he goes on to say, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Sound is a word that the Apostle Paul used a lot. And sound simply means healthy, like vibrant, alive, full of life, not sick and decrepit. He says older men need to be sound, of sound faith in God. That is, it's not enough for us older men, if you categorize yourself as such, it's not enough for us older men to just believe in God. No, we're meant to have a living, growing faith in God. A faith that leads us to love him and to love others. And to do so in a way that's steadfast, he says. You know what steadfast means? It means stable, unwavering. It's what Alex prayed for the churches in Connecticut just a moment ago. That they would be steadfast in their faith and love. It means persevering. You know, some guys will believe in God for a while and will love for a while. Love their wives for a while, for instance, until they don't anymore. And Paul knew people like that. He knew people that had loved God for a time and had loved him, Paul, for a time and perhaps had loved their spouses for a time until they didn't anymore. Maybe you know people like that too. In the gospel, God promises us steadfast love. And he calls us to respond with steadfast love for him and for others, including for our spouse, if you are in fact married. God makes a covenant with us, and he wants us to be covenant-keeping men why marital infidelity is so out of alignment with the gospel. It's not just a bad thing. It's not just a destructive thing. It is, as all sin is, but marital infidelity is completely out of step with a gospel that's built on covenant, steadfast love from God to us through Christ. And we're meant to respond to that love with steadfast love towards him and towards all of those that we enter into covenant with. And so for older men, the question that arises is, is, is this what we're aiming for? Is this description, this character sketch, what you're aiming for if you're an older man? Are you aiming for steadfast faith and steadfast love? Because those aren't necessarily things that our culture values all the time. And, and in fact, sometimes I don't even, I wonder if it's even what some Christian voices 
value. I hear Christian voices online sometimes calling men to, to, in the name of biblical manhood, to embrace and exude power and dominance and autonomy. How unlike Jesus, who bound himself to others via covenant and laid his life down for others. Sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Is this what you're aiming for? And he turns his attention to older women in verse 3. He says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. That word for reverent, that's what he opens up with, right? Reverent means worshipful. Reverent means devoted to the Lord. And, and, and what I think is so interesting about this, and we should, we should expect it, but women are not defined here primarily in relation to men. They're defined primarily in relation to God. The first thing that Paul says about women is not how they should relate to the men in their lives, but how they should relate to God. Filled with worship and devotion to him. And then Paul gives two specifics for these older women to avoid. He says, avoid slander and the abuse of alcohol. You might wonder, why does he pick these specific two things? I'm not sure. It may be that perhaps these, these two particular sins were common in Cretan culture. Either way, they're relevant for us, aren't they? Slander here, by the way. The Bible word for slander doesn't just mean what the English word slander means. The Bible word for slander doesn't just mean lying about people. The Bible word for slander actually means trashing people. Um, it means smearing people. It means undermining them and speaking negatively of them so as to destroy their reputation, regardless of what you're saying is technically true or not. And it often happens when we talk a lot. We start slandering people when we kind of say too much. Maybe it happens even more when one drinks and talks a lot, and so maybe that's why these two things of slander and abusing alcohol go together. But this kind of speech that undermines people, it's insidious. It's, it's, it can be insidious in our churches and in the workplace, in our friend groups. It's so easy to devolve into this culture where you're just naturally speaking evil of other people to the point where no one even notices how destructive and poisonous it is. My mother told me when I was very young that if someone slanders others to you, they probably slander you to others. And I always kept that in mind. I often would think of this. If someone was slandering someone else to me, I think, I wonder what they say about me when I'm not around. Hmm. And if someone is willing to listen to my slander of someone else, then it's likely that they slander me and other people's company as well, or are willing to entertain slander of me when I'm not around. In any case, it's a, it's a poisonous practice. And the Apostle Paul says it's out of step with the gospel. In the gospel, God, perfect in holiness, looks at us as sinners and says, I'm choosing to see you as righteous in Christ. God speaks a good word about us. In the gospel, God says, forgiven righteous. The, the righteousness of Christ has been given to you. He speaks a good word about us. 
How out of line with the gospel is it when we speak evil of others, drag their name through the mud, even in subtle ways? He says that women also should not be addicted or, or uh, slaves to much alcohol. The Bible forbids the abuse of alcohol, New Hope. It does not forbid the use of alcohol as much as some of us might think it does. It doesn't. Um, some have claimed that the Bible forbids the use of alcohol, but it says as clear as, as I can see here, the, the, what's forbidden here is to be slaves to much wine or slaves being the key word there and much also being a key word. Some have claimed that in the New Testament, Christians drank wine, but the wine was non-alcoholic. The, the wine that Jesus drank was non-alcoholic. It may have been less alcoholic than the wine we drink today. I have no idea, but it certainly wasn't non-alcoholic because if it was, then why would Paul tell these women not to be slaves of much wine? Unless he was concerned about their sugar intake or something. It, it would seem that he was worried about them getting drunk, getting wasted. But the Bible does condemn abuse, and it warns us against the dangers of alcohol. And it's not just alcohol, but any inebriating, every, any mind-altering substance. In light of that, it's probably true that some of us as Christians need to give up alcohol. Not because God says that alcohol is never to be used, but because we have found in our own experience that we're not very good at using it well. Either by nature or out of practice, we've become abusers of alcohol. And for some of us, maybe we need to cut that off completely. And maybe some of us need brothers and sisters in, in our lives to call us out and to hold us accountable and say, you, you don't need that anymore. In fact, you should keep your hands off of that. We need to help one another exercise self-control in that area. Thirdly, we've got to move on. The Apostle Paul speaks to younger women. That's in verse 4 and 5. What did he say to them? He says, And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Um, in this culture, women typically married very young, and they had babies young. And so Paul wants them to love their husbands and their children. The assumption being that most of them, the young women in that church, are going to be married. Um, interestingly, a lot of biblical historians point to the fact that at this time, there was, there was a kind of shift taking place across the Roman Empire, which included Crete. There, there was this movement happening, and it was sometimes called the New Woman Movement. And at the time, it was, it was culturally acceptable for men, you know, in, the, in this kind of like extremely chauvinistic uh, you know, patriarchal kind of society in the Roman Empire, it was very common for men to be unfaithful and promiscuous. And that was culturally okay. Not within the church, but within the world. It was okay. And women had gotten tired of that double standard. And so many young women in that culture were embracing infidelity themselves and promiscuity themselves. That may be why the Apostle Paul places the emphasis where he does here. He urges young women toward self-control. Again, the same word again, self-control, and toward caring for their families because a movement was taking place that was calling women to abandon their families and pursue the sinful freedoms that the culture had allowed men to pursue for many years. And so the Apostle Paul counters that, and he calls women to be working at home. Working at home. I want you to look closely at that for just a moment. It's not a 
prohibition against working outside of home. We might be likely to think that, but that's going beyond what God's Word says here. God's Word does not tell women to not work outside the home. In fact, Paul is probably contrasting these two ideas of working at home. On the one hand, he's contrasting that with being promiscuous and and neglecting one's family, not loving one's family. It is true that God's design is for married women to care for their households, for mothers to care for their households. But when we think about that, we can't think about that in a culturally bound way, just in terms of like 1950s TV shows that we used to watch or any other kind of like culturally bound stereotype. Working at home wasn't just cooking and cleaning in Paul's day. For many, it was involvement in the family business or the planting and harvesting of family crops. It encompassed more than what we think of today as domestic work. As we hear these words, we also need to remember some of the women that the Apostle Paul commends to us in other parts of the Bible. Women like Priscilla, Junia, Lydia. These women were pillars, servants, teachers in the early church. We need to remember what God tells us in Proverbs 31 about one particular woman that we read of there who is praised by those in her household because of her love and care for her home, but she's also praised and respected outside of her household because of her excellence in business and and generosity towards people in need. That, That woman that we read about in Proverbs 31 has a life outside of her domestic responsibilities. All that to say this, I want God's word to convict us where it should, and to convict you, my sisters. But I don't, want, I don't want to go beyond what God's Word is saying. The opposite of working at home is not working outside of the home. The opposite of working at home is neglecting to work at home. The opposite of working at home is neglecting your household. And that neglect of one's household could result from an overcommitment to career, but it can also result from an overcommitment to many things. An overcommitment to social life or social media or Netflix, who knows? Anything that that calls us to neglect serving our households, and in particular, Paul's talking to women here, married women with children, anything that's calling you to overcommit and neglect loving and caring for your household is to be rejected. So sisters, you are not sinning because you have vocational aspirations outside your home. You're not. I hope, I don't, I've no, we've never preached that as a church to my knowledge. But what we hear from our culture sometimes is that if you don't have, as a woman, if you don't have vocational aspirations outside your home, then somehow you're a disgrace, you're a failure. I read an opinion piece in an Australian publication recently where the editor said that it should be illegal to be stay-at-home mom. Actually, she said mom because it was, in, it was in Australia. She said, it's illegal to be, it should be illegal to be a stay-at-home mom because stay-at-home moms don't contribute to the economy, she said. God disagrees. God disagrees. Your contributions are major and your contributions are eternal. And you're not thanked enough for them. 
And that's why this is a gospel issue. It really is, because if the gospel is true, then the physical and spiritual well-being of your family is more valuable than career or wealth or success or any other pursuit. Paul's not minimizing women who aren't married or don't have children, by the way. If you are not married or don't have children, you are loved. Your identity is not in your status as a mom or as single or married. God wants you, whether you're married or single, to fulfill your calling where you are. You are not less than. The Apostle Paul calls younger women to be submissive to their husbands. And notice he doesn't say to be submissive to men generally. He doesn't say that you should be subordinate to men as a whole. But he does say that you should be willing to be led by your husbands. Led by your husbands who in turn are called to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. That's God's beautiful design for the household. That's a gospel-driven household a gospel-aligned household that, God, that Paul wants to see in Crete and in Westchester, New York. Then lastly, he talks about what we'll look at today. He talks about younger men. He says that younger men, he says, I urge the, he says, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, period. That's it. Isn't that interesting? He has a long list of things that he calls other people to. But he says, younger men, I'm going to keep it simple for you. I'm going to keep it real simple. You'll, you, you can remember this. You've got one job, control yourself. So often when the Bible tells men to be men, it means don't be children. It's it's interesting. If you look at instances in Scripture where God is calling men to be men, he's not so much calling them to be men in contrast with women. Like, don't be effeminate. There are calls for men not to be effeminate. But generally he's saying, don't act like kids. Act like a grown-up. Don't be controlled by your impulses, your hormonally driven desires. Paul's also calling young men away from self-centeredness. He's echoing what Jesus himself said in Mark 8:34. It says, and, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's what Paul's saying. Young men, follow in the steps of your self-denying Savior. The world is filled with young men who are slaves to their impulses. The world's got plenty of young men who are obsessed with self-gratification. Got too many of them. The world has too many men that are trapped in addiction to porn or entertainment or video games, what have you. Any number of addictions. What the church needs and what God wants to see is young men who've been empowered by the gospel to control themselves for the good of others. For the good of others. We're not going to look at what Paul says to Titus specifically and to bond servants. We'll come back to it probably in the future, but for now we won't. I just want to answer these last two questions quickly. The why and the how. The why. Why do we need to learn to live this way? Why do we need to learn to live in, such a, in these particular ways that align with the gospel? Let me make it quick. He tells us in verse 5, verse 8, and verse 10. Live this way so that the word of God may not be reviled. So that an opponent may not be put so an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our of our God and our Savior. 
What's the reason for us to learn to live lives that align with the gospel? Paul could have given us many reasons, but he focuses on this one. So that God's word won't be discredited. So that the gospel won't be undermined. So the gospel will be adorned. Think of adorning as, as a kind of like uh, making something look better. You take a beautiful painting and you put it in a beautiful frame. And the frame doesn't, doesn't detract from the painting. Hopefully the frame just makes the painting look better. It frames it in such a way that people want to look at it more closely. Perhaps are more attracted to it. Paul says our, our character and our conduct is meant to frame the gospel. It's meant to adorn the gospel, not undermine or discredit it. Many people are going to dismiss God's word. We know this. Many of us rejected and dismissed God's word for many years. People rejected Jesus himself. But how often is it that people might reject the gospel because of us, because of our conduct? Every time a Christian leader, quote-unquote, turns out to be a hypocrite, So much shame is placed on the gospel. I've seen so many professing Christian leaders turn out to be what Paul calls empty talkers and deceivers, out for shameful gain. How about us, too? Every time we fail to live like Jesus in the presence of unbelieving friends and family, Don't we give them a reason to reject the gospel? Don't we undermine the testimony of Jesus through our behavior, our words, our actions? Instead of adorning the gospel, like putting a frame around it, say, look how beautiful. It's like we're we're damaging the gospel. Like like, like those folks that throw that tomato soup on the the Van Gogh painting, you know, the the protesters. It's kind of made that painting look ugly. Francis Grimke once said, people judge the value of our religion not by what we say of it, but by what it is actually making of us, by its effect upon our character and life. You think he's right? You think he's right? If people know that you're a follower of Jesus who believes the gospel, don't you think to some degree, they judge the veracity of the gospel, the trustworthiness of the gospel based on your conduct and character. I think it's true. And so the question arises for us, do people see a goodness in us that results from the gospel's power that makes them want to believe the gospel, even if they don't believe it yet? So the why, it's a missional why. By living a lot, we're lives that align with the gospel, we endorse, we support the gospel, we adorn it. And then lastly, the Apostle Paul says, how this is all supposed to happen. How are we supposed to be taught to live lives aligned with the gospel? And the answer is simple. We're supposed to be taught within the context of a culture of discipleship. I know I've gone long. Let me, let me finish this. I'll end this and we'll be done. I'm sorry for taking so long. Paul says, Titus, you need to teach people. But then he also says, older women, you have to teach the younger women. And then he says, likewise, the younger men are to be taught. And it seems that he's saying the younger men are supposed to be taught by the older men, too. And then he says, Titus, you're to be a model of good works. That means you're supposed to be an example to be followed. And the takeaway from all this is that we're meant to be a community of people who teach, 
and model and learn from each other what it looks like to live godly lives, to be Jesus-y people. Preaching on Sundays is just one part of that. I do think preaching is important. I think we're commanded to do it, and that's why I do it. But it's not the only tool for teaching. It's not the only tool that we have to get our lives aligned with the gospel. We need a lot of alignment tools. In fact, a lot of what God is doing in this community, I know it's not happening through pastors necessarily. And it's not just happening on Sundays. It's happening when men and women in community together are helping each other live lives that align with the sound doctrine of the gospel. Paul wants to see Cretan churches that, that have this, this, this living culture where Christians love and they lead and they care for one another. We should be known for being a, for being a, a, a church filled with humble fathers and mothers in the faith who, who invest in younger Christians who are newer in the faith and vice versa too. Church is really meant to be a community of modelers, disciplers, mentors, teachers of one another, a kind of household. So the question is, are we making space for that in our lives? Are you making space for that? Are you intentionally pursuing that to be a discipler, a teacher, a mentor to those who are younger than you, or to receive discipling, mentoring, teaching from those that are perhaps a little further ahead than you? By God's grace, this church has people in various seasons of life, various seasons of marriage and singleness, parenthood. I believe that diversity is by God's design. And he's calling us to steward it well, to use it well. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's a responsibility that falls on elders for sure, but it doesn't end with elders. Right now, we're just talking about this recently. Right now, we're planning to hold some seminars in the coming months um, on parenting, some studies perhaps on marriage, smaller group studies on marriage, other topics perhaps. We'll do that too in programmed ways. It's one of the ways that we can teach how to live godly lives. We do also try to recommend books and give out books that you can read and learn from. It's all important, but, but are we as a community eager to help one another learn organically? to learn from one another what really accords with sound doctrine? Are we eager to learn from one another how to live lives that align with the gospel? This is what God wants for us. This is what God wants for us. And Paul tells us to pursue this because he believes, and I hope we believe too, that God is able to make it happen. He's able to give us the godliness that he commands of us. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. Um, I'm thankful for the patience of these folks. And, and I, I ask, Father, that you take, that you take the wisdom of your word, that you'd uh, filter out anything that I've said that's unhelpful or distracting, and that you would, in fact, teach us through the preaching of your word, but beyond that, through the conversations that we have, through the meals that we have together, through the uh, care group sessions, through the discipleship group sessions, through the time that we live together as a church, would you please teach us what kind of lives 
accord with the sound doctrine of the gospel. Help us to live Jesus-y ways, Lord, for your glory, and so that others will see the gospel, be attracted to it, believe it, and experience salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.